Once again, we welcome you to our assembly. We're thankful for the presence of everyone who is here tonight. We're going to study again about the history of the church. And uh, what we want to do is we want to rewind just a little bit and uh, talk about how the departure actually occurred. Talk about some of the things that occurred. But before we do that, I want to review the facts of how and what the church was. We know that uh, the church in the Bible is called the Church of Christ, Romans chapter 16 and 16. We know that the church began in the city of Jerusalem, as the prophets foretold in uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 2 and Malachi chapter uh, 2. And of course, we have the history of this event in Acts chapter 2. We know that it uh, occurred about AD 33, uh, after the first Pentecost, or on the first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, we know that Peter began to preach uh, somewhere around 9 a.m. in the morning, Acts chapter 2, verse 15. We know that Jesus Christ is the builder. We know that he is the foundation. He's the cornerstone along with the apostles and the prophets. The Bible says the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now we know that even though there was only one church in one faith, some departed from that faith, some left that faith. And we were warned about this uh, early before it happened. We know that these men followed doctrines of demons or doctrines that came from the devil himself. Now, we know that uh, the Bible identified the second church and identified the departure by stating that this uh, group of people would forbid some to marry and command certain foods not to be eaten. So, here we have the church of Jesus Christ, and we have a departure predicted. And at first, there were no denominations. There were no, no uh, religious sectarian organizations. There was only one body. There was only one church. Now, I think we need to understand something. The word church, ecclesia, means called out. And literally translated, it should have been assembly. In fact, if you study the Bible and you look to Acts chapter 19, you'll notice that the word ecclesia is translated in reference to a town meeting. And all the word means is assembly. So it's not wrong to say the Baptist church because that is the Baptist assembly. But it's wrong to call it the Church of Christ because it's not the Lord's assembly. And so when we talk about one church, we're talking about one saving church. There are many religious bodies. There are many assemblies in the world, but they'll not save you. Only the church that you read about in the Bible. Only the religious institution that is recorded in the scriptures. And we pointed out last evening, there are 3,000 mainline churches. Well, how was it that the church of Jesus Christ, those who were brothers and sisters in the body and ranks of our Lord, left the true faith and entered into darkness? Friends, it was not one giant leap into darkness. It was one small step at a time, one day after another, one small error after another. And of course, over a period of a hundred years, all of those steps uh, became such a giant mountain. Those who were born under that hundred year departure had no idea of what the truth even was. They didn't know how to get back. And so that's of course how the departure occurred. So we want to talk about some of those details. Listen to what Paul says to the church at Ephesus. He's talking about this same problem. You see, 
The problem is still real. It's still an issue today. That's why the old preachers told us, brethren, we're drifting. They reminded us of the fact that we need to be aware of the fact that we can drift away from the truth, that we can leave the truth, and we can do it in such an unconscious way we don't even realize that it's occurring until it's too late. You know what's so dangerous about leaving the truth? You know, the best way to illustrate it, you know, I've been in the church long enough now to see this happen many times. A man and woman decide they're not satisfied with the truth. And so they leave. Maybe they go into what we call the digressive church. Maybe they go into denominationalism. They'd been raised in the truth. And they go off in, in, into the world, away from the truth, and raise their families. And then finally one day they wake up and they come back. But the children stay where they were. And that's why drifting, that's one of the reasons why drifting is so dangerous. It's not just where we are going, but where is the next generation going to go? And often, the next or the second generation, the third generation, they are so far removed from the pure that they don't know how to get back. Now, think about this. This is very important. Therefore, Paul says, he's talking to the elders at Ephesus. He's called them to Miletus. He's hastening his journey to get to Jerusalem by a certain time. And so he sends word ahead for these men to meet him at the seacoast town of Miletus. And uh, he gives them a farewell address. He thinks that this is the last time he's going to see them, but it isn't the last time. He sees them several other occasions. Now, this is the same church that he had spent some three years working uh, among and working with uh, previous to this. He had established this church, and he had gone in there later and spent three years uh, working and laboring among them. Now, notice what the Bible says. Therefore, take heed to yourselves, talking to the leaders of the church, the elders, take heed, therefore, to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Listen to this. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away to the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Notice now, Paul says there are going to be problems in the church both from without and from within. Now I'm not so afraid of the problems out there, of the enemy out there, because we know who he is. But you know the people that are dangerous are people who are on the inside, people we love, people we esteem, people that we believe are faithful who do their dirty work behind the scenes, in secret, so to speak. Now, that's the way it always is. Who work on prey on the weak. Who work and pray on those who are troubled and have problems. Paul says there's going to be trouble on the inside and on the outside. That's the way it's always been. There's going to be trouble ahead. It plans road. We have to face that fact. There's going to be problems in the church in the future. There always will be. The Bible says that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
And so we have to recognize that fact. At first, the church was pure. And John told the brethren, he said, you try the spirits. And he qualifies what those spirits were by saying that they were preachers or teachers in the church. They were false prophets that had gone out into the world. He says, test them. Put them to the test. Try them. Make sure they are what they claim they ought to be. Now, again, I want to emphasize, at first, the church was pure. But there was one small change after another. Now, what's interesting about this, if you go through and you study this, we, there's no, we don't have time tonight to talk about all of it, but every one of these early departures had something that they affected, that it affected later on. And this apostasy grew and grew and grew until you had the Roman church. And it was one little step at a time that maybe people didn't have much uh, thought about or concern about. Now, one of the first things that was introduced was about 20 years after the last apostle died, and that was holy water. Now, how did that start? I don't know for sure. But I won't tell you this. I noticed one day in Zambia, well, they always pray before they, you know, we pray afterwards. They do too, but they pray before they baptize too. I don't always understand, didn't always, wasn't always able to hear what was being said. But I noticed one day, the brother said, Lord, will you bless the water? And I thought, hmm. And so, you know, we, have stud we had studies and, and we had uh, dialogue. We've, we've gotten too sophisticated for that kind of teaching in, in, in America, you know. But Paul, the Bible says, taught them. And that word taught means that he dialogued with them. In Acts chapter 20 verse 7, it was not just getting up and giving a 45 minute discourse. He actually dialogued with the brethren in the audience. That's the way we do it in Zambia. Bill Davis taught me how to do that. And there's a great deal of learning when that happens. Well anyway, we're dialoguing about this. And I asked the brethren, I said, how do you think people started blessing the water in the first century? How do you think the holy water came about? And you know, there were some in that audience, so these are all church leaders, about 100 church leaders, and there were some in that audience that thought when the brother was praying for the Lord to bless the water that he was, he was creating holy water. Now the brother who made that prayer said he didn't mean anything by it. He was just... Uh, he was just asking the Lord's blessing on what they're about to do. That's all he meant by what he said. But you see, sometimes good intentions lead to bad things. We have to realize that. Maybe that's how holy water came into vogue in the first century. I don't know. Or the second century, actually. Uh, maybe that's how holy water was introduced. I don't know. Maybe it was innocent. It was still water. It still was the same water after they blessed it as it was before. It still had the same saving power. But of course it set them up for other changes later on. And we'll talk about that. Another departure that came about 140 was Lent and Easter. Another departure in 157 AD was the doctrine of penance. Now this developed from something that was good and right. You know when somebody commits a sin there are consequences. When a church leader is immoral... He, he don't make a confession this Sunday because he got caught. And then next Sunday you have him up there leading singing and praying and leading the service in the teaching. That's not the way it works. The Bible says you know those who labor among you. 
If a man's an immoral person, what do you know about him when you put him up there the next Sunday? You know he's a person that said, I'm sorry, and that you know that he's an immoral man. That's what you know about him. Now, we need to put it in proper perspective. The Bible says test the spirits. That means something. That's not put in there to fill in space. We are too quick to put men in positions of authority. Now, listen to me. When a man's a gospel preacher, if I go out here and commit adultery and I have a meeting at Plans Road and you don't cancel it, you're going to be accountable to the Lord for that. It doesn't matter if I make 10,000 confessions. There are consequences for my action. Yes, I can be forgiven. Yes, I can be forgiven. But there are consequences to my action. And I need to be responsible. And when I'm in a trusted position and I betray that trust, it's very, very difficult to know if I've really repented. Because if I repented after I got caught, that might be the only reason I repented. And I know that happens. And we're too quick to put people in the pulpit, too quick to put people back in a position of authority when they, when they spoil that position. Now that's where that doctrine of repentance came from. It was good intentions. It just wasn't enough for them to make a confession and sit on the bench, you see. They started having different things. Sometimes they paid money. That's where uh, the idea of paying money for sin came from. It developed into all kinds of corrupt things. Well, the doctrine of penance was foreign to the Bible. It's foreign to the teaching of the Bible. Now, there's some, there's some uh, connection to the Bible in that doctrine, but it's carrying the gospel too far, carrying what's written too far. In 190 AD, the Apostles' Creed was developed in, in the year 200. Now, this is interesting. And I, in fact, I want to write this on the board because I want you to keep this in your heart and in your mind. In the New Testament church, there were elders, and of course those elders were known as shepherds. Those shepherds were known as uh, pastors. Those uh, pastors were known as, uh, as uh, let's see, there's another term. Where, let's see, elders, shepherds, pastors, oh, bishops. And there were bishops in the church. Now all of these terms referred to the same thing. All of them referred to the same uh, uh, office or the same work. But now think about this. What men decided was the eldership is not, it does not have the respect it needs. It does not have the uh, uh, authority that it needs. Uh, people didn't listen to the eldership like they should. And so they took uh, brethren to task. Instead of teaching them the, the, what they needed to know, instead of teaching them the truth, they, of course, uh, decided this is what we'll do. We'll change the name of the elder to priest. We'll exalt him. Now, they might have reasoned like this. The elder is a priest. Because all Christians are priests. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the Bible says that we make up a royal priesthood. We're all individual priests. And we're to all offer up spiritual sacrifices unto the Lord. There is no clergy-laity relationship in the church of Christ. This is one of the main differences between us and the rest of the religious world. There are no big I's and little U's. We're all members one of another. We're all connected one to the other. But in the year 200 A.D., they exalted the leadership 
and started designating the local elders as priests, separate from the church, separate from the membership. Now that was a major change. It seemed like small, but that's what led to the great apostasy, or one of the things that led to the great apostasy. In 220 AD, purgatory was introduced. Now, of course, that was where if you had a loved one who was lost, uh, he'd go to hell or go to purgatory for a period of time, and uh, after a while he'd suffer, and uh, he'd uh, endure a great deal of pain, but you could actually buy his way into heaven. And that was the doctrine people wanted. Rich people were willing to pay for that. Rich people were willing to donate lots of money to the apostate church because of this doctrine. Well, it was rejected in the beginning. But it was reintroduced in 1070 A.D. and became a part of the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, now in 250 A.D., now you can see a connection here. The water we're using is holy. You know... It might be that we, won't, we don't have a priest down at so-and-so place, but we got a priest here. And he's, he's, uh, he's uh, blessed this water. It's become holy water. We don't have to dunk people anymore. So-and-so's on a sick bed, and he's not able to be immersed in water. So we got this holy water. Let's just sprinkle them. See how it works? One departure encourages another. That's why it's so important to investigate everything we practice, everything we believe, and make sure that what we're doing is according to the dictates of God's Word and not just something that mom and dad did or that the preacher says we ought to do. Well, the departure from the New Testament pattern is very slow. There are a lot of other things that I could talk about, but I don't have the time. But it's one step at a time, one minute change at a time. One day after day, one change after change. And through the years, the departure becomes a terrible thing. And it actually develops into what we call the apostate church. It's gradual. And it takes a long time. However, something changed that helped this departure. Now, according to Mr. Brombach, the public functions of religion were solely entrusted to the established ministers of the church, the bishops and the presbyters. Now, look at this. You see, in 220 or so, they took elders and decided that they're priests. Now what they've done, they've elevated the, the elders above the membership just a little bit. Now the next step is these, uh, this clergy that's developing decides that not everybody has a right to wait at the Lord's table. Have you ever discussed... Uh, with a Catholic priest about the communion. You know, they believe that, that none of us eat the Lord's body and bread because you have to have that connection to Peter, all the way back to Peter, and you have to uh, be a, a certain individual that's had that authority passed down through him, to him through the ages to bless it and make it the Lord's body and the Lord's blood. Well, of course, the Bible doesn't teach that it is the Lord's body or it is the Lord's blood anyway. The word is, in Matthew 26, 26, and 27, is a copula, and it means it's a symbol of representation. It represents the body of Jesus. It represents the blood of Jesus. It does not become the blood of Jesus. During the communion, when we bless the loaf, it is 
a representative of the body of Jesus. And it remains that representative until everybody in the assembly eats from that one loaf. When the last person eats from that one loaf, it's finished and it's no longer the body of Christ. And we get that all confused and we have great debates about what you got to do with the bread when the service is over. But it's just bread when the service is over. And we get that from the Catholic idea that it becomes the body of Christ, whether we want to admit that or not. We better be careful. Now, what they do next, they take away the jobs from the church. The clergy starts leading all the singing. They start leading all the praying. They start waiting at the Lord's Supper. They start doing all the preaching. And so they're developing this clergy-laity relationship. They're making a distinction, a separation between those who lead the church and those who attend church. That's the beginning of, them, of, of the Catholic Church taking the Bible away from people. You know, when they took the Bible away from people, you know how they did that? They made Bibles in Latin, a language that had been dead for hundreds of years. Nobody could read it. When O. Wycliffe translated the Bible, he was so hated that 75 years after he was dead, they dug up his bones and burned them and strewed them to the four winds. <laughs> I don't know what difference that made, but they hated him so much because he translated the Bible they did that as an act of, of uh, hatred toward him because they said, people said, the authority of the church said, the common man can't read the Bible. He can't serve God. You've got to have a special people, a special group. Now listen to me. The Bible says we're all priests. When you sin, you have a right to approach God and ask Him to forgive you. There's not a cl clergy-laity relationship in the church. Some people have this idea that they have to have the preacher pray for them. Well, I'm going to tell you something. That is not the Bible. That is our thinking from this idea of a clergy-laity relationship. Now, don't misunderstand me. If you commit a public sin, you need to publicly acknowledge that sin. But if you realize you sinned on Monday, you don't have to wait till Sunday to pray to God to forgive you and wait till Sunday to be forgiven. Because you're a priest. If you're a Christian this evening, you're a priest in the Lord's service and you have access to God. Now, I want to give you an example of that. Now, under the Old Testament, during the, the, the Moses, Mosaic Age, they had a priesthood, the descendants of Aaron. During the Patriarchal Age, they had no priesthood in that sense. But the patriarch of the family served as the priest. He offered the sacrifice. For example, in Job the first chapter, the Bible says that Job made sacrifice for his sons just in case they sinned. You see, while there was no priesthood as such, the patriarch acted in the place of the priest. Now, Abraham was a patriarch. Now, he went down to Egypt and he told Pharaoh, Sarah is my sister. Now, what did your dad do when he found out you told half of the truth? And you told half of the truth because you wanted to fool him. And then he found out that you told him half the truth so that you wouldn't get in trouble. What did he do? I'll tell you what my dad did. He took his belt off and he wore my bottom out. Because the half truth is a lie. 
Abraham lied to Pharaoh. Now, it's true that Sarah was his half-sister. They had the same father, but not the same mother. But now listen, folks, he lied. Now, Pharaoh took Sarah to be his wife. Now, evidently, he didn't commit any immorality with her, but he just took her into his house. And when that happened, the Bible says that God caused plagues to fall upon Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh did this in ignorance. He didn't know that he had a man's wife. But because he took Sarah, plagues were put down upon his house, and he realized that he had made God unhappy, and so he found out from the Lord that Sarah was Abraham's wife in addition to being his sister, and he brought him in and rebuked him. But you know what happened when, when Pharaoh wanted, to be, wanted this plague to be removed? You know what God said? He said, you have Abraham the priest, the prophet, the prodigal, or the, patri- the, the, uh, the uh, patriarchal of his family, the, the go-between for you and God, He said, you had him offer sacrifice for you. Now, the point is this. The point I'm trying to make is this. When I sin, because I'm a priest, even though I've sinned, if I approach God according to his terms, I can ask for forgiveness. And it doesn't matter if I've sinned, I can still ask God. I can still pray to God, just like Abraham did for Pharaoh. Well, that's a sideline, but I think we need to talk about that like we did when I was a kid. I remember Don McCord emphasizing that in meetings that he held. I remember Linwood emphasizing that in meetings they held. And, and we didn't have a problem with it then like we have sometimes now. People have this idea that, uh, that you've got to walk down the aisle and, be, and confess your sins. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there is no priesthood separate from the church. Every Christian is a priest. Well, the point is they took the work away from the members. A small change in church government occurs. The elders are elevated. They're called priests now. And, of course, the work in the early church was done by all qualified members, but now it was only those who were uh, sanctified for that purpose in the eyes of men. Notice now, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it says, They were able also to admonish one another, that is, to teach one another. Therefore, comfort each other, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, each other, and edify one another, just as you also are doing. In other words, everybody in the early church who was qualified, every man in the early church who was qualified could serve at the Lord's table. Every man who was qualified and faithful could teach the audience. Every man who had the ability, every man who had the faithfulness could stand and lead the assembly in a song. There was no clergy-lady relationship. All were equal as far as the church is concerned. So the leadership takes all the work from the membership. And this started about 100 years after the last apostle died. Just about the time, 100 years after the last apostle died. Now remember what Paul said. He said some would rise up among us speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. This truly was the beginning of the end. Now, The Bible says, or history tells us rather, that in the major metropolitan areas they had large churches. Now just like it is today, the church at Plans Road, the church at Brundage Lane sends help to to Hatchby, right? You all help, help, is that right, Doyle? 
Is that right, Daryl? In a sense, you guys help to hatch me. They don't send help down here. You, you send help up there because they're a country church, small church. Well, that's the way it was in the first, in about the third century. You had these large church, large churches, and uh, you had these churches in the countryside. And what would happen is uh, the churches in the country didn't always have the leadership they needed, and so they sought help from other places. Now, it wasn't wrong for these other places to help them, but that set them up for a great departure from the truth. And so the elders have been exalted. <clears throat> Excuse me. They took the work away from the people, and then uh, they decided that when there was a problem among the elders that could not be settled, that what they should do is exalt one of the uh, elders above the others and call him bishop. Now, in every church or in a lot of the congregations, what developed was a head elder. That's what they had. They, that if they had five elders and they ran into a problem couldn't be solved, they had one man that made the final decision. Now, it's natural for some men to have more influence than other men. It depends, obviously, on their ability. It depends on how much time they spend in the work. It's natural for some men to have more influence than others. But what happened was they took that simple, logical thing and made it more than it should have been. They exalted him as chief elder. Now, that, of course, led to something else. In fact, uh, what they did is they developed or brought in a new name. They borrowed a, a name from the Old Testament, patriarch. They made one of the elders in the local eldership a patriarch. Now, we have the scriptural situation, elders ruling in every church, deacons serving under the eldership. And, of course, the bishop uh, was an elder. He was equal to the elder. He was not over the elder. But, of course, this attitude of the apostate church led to a departure from the truth. And so now all of these churches are looking to these, to these uh, town churches for assistance. And now the town church appoints a man to be over all these country churches. And he develops what is called a diocese. And they have an archbishop. And this we know historically occurred in Rome, Constantinople, Ephesus, Antioch, and Alexandria. Now the next step was logical. Because you see what happened was the church in Alexandria had a problem out here in the country somewhere. They couldn't get it solved. They'd been working on it for a long time. It couldn't be solved. So they called over to Antioch. And pretty soon, uh, maybe uh, the church at Ephesus called over to Constantinople. They couldn't get the problem solved. So they had to put somebody else over all the churches. And finally, it ended up that there was a papa in the city of Rome. Now, this was caused by a lack of knowledge. Not by the people in charge, but by the membership. You see, there has to be a check and balance situation. And if there's not, then we're headed for trouble. Every member has a responsibility. You have an obligation. When I teach something that's wrong, to talk to me about that. Listen to me. If you're a teacher in the church and you don't like it when people object to something you've said or talk to you about what's, what you've said, then you better change your attitude. Because the audience has a right to question everything that's said publicly. And if I, as a gospel preacher, or as a teacher or leader in the church, am not willing to be questioned, then I have, not, I have no right to even teach. 
Because the church is to protect the truth. You're to protect the pulpit. Listen, folks, it's not just Frankie's job. It's your job, brother. It's your job. It's your responsibility. And that's how the church is protected. That's why in the Church of Christ, we don't have this clergy-lady relationship. We're all members one of another now. We all have ability. And sometimes because of our ability, we may develop more influence than someone else. But we have no authority that the Bible does not give us. Our authority comes from the Bible. And this problem was caused because people didn't study. I'm going to tell you something. If we, don't, if we don't have a knowledge of the Bible, we're headed for trouble. Hosea said, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Let me ask you a question. If you're a teacher in the church at Brundage, or you're a teacher in the church here at Plans Road, have you read the New Testament through? How many times have you read it through? How about if you're a sister here? Now, you're not a public teacher. You don't teach in the church. Your responsibility in any public situation, as far as the Bible's concerned, is silence and submission. But you're supposed to have a Bible knowledge so you can teach your children, so you can teach your neighbor. How many times have you read the New Testament through? Do you realize that if you're a slow reader and you spend 20 minutes a day, now who, who among us could not get up 20 minutes earlier than we normally do and read the Bible for 20 minutes. What's 20 minutes? If you read 20 minutes a day, every day, in one year, you'll read the Bible through. But suppose you're a really slow reader and you only get halfway through. So what? Read it in two years. But make it your lifetime goal to continue absorbing the will of God. David said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. David said, The entrance of thy word giveth light. When have we ever lived in a time when we needed light more desperately? We need to know what the light says. We need to absorb the light. We need to memorize it. We need to read it. We need to think about it. We need to discuss it. The departure occurred because people didn't study. There are a lot of reasons why we don't have the Bible knowledge we used to have. But the main reason is because we're not studying. We've gotten so busy. It's so incredible how busy we are. We spend our life. And the things that are most important sometimes remain on the back burner and our life passes us by. Well, another thing that caused this problem was a desire for preeminence. <laughs> you know anybody in the church that wants to be the boss? <laughs> I do. That's dangerous. Leadership is not being a boss, folks. In fact, Jesus teaches us that leadership is servantship. A Bible leader that's going to lead the church in the right way is serving the church. 
is exhausting his life in service. That's what a leader is in God's eyes. It's not being the boss, but all the diatrophies have not passed away, have they? Preeminence. That also led to the departure. A desire for a new way of worship. Be careful when you want to change things. It's not always bad to change unless the change is contrary to this book. But be careful when you change things. Because that attitude might lead you in the wrong direction. Well, there's no denominations. There's only one church. All of these departures occur, many others that we could talk about. And then, of course, they put Papa ahead of the whole church universally. And in 606 AD, he was appointed, and they called it the Roman Catholic Church. The headquarters was in Rome, Italy. And, of course, uh, some believe that the papacy succession went all the way back to Peter. But, of course, we know that the Bible does not teach this. Now, it's interesting, there's only one church. Now, I don't know exactly when this occurred, but there was a division in the Roman church between the Western Empire and the, Roman em and the, and the uh, Eastern Empire. And when that division occurred, there were three churches. And, of course, there was the Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Catholic Church, and the Church of Christ for over a thousand years. There's only three churches. Isn't it amazing? Church, church down here, church guy came tonight. He's looking for a church on Plans Road. We tried to get him to stay, but he's looking for somebody else, somewhere else, that was supposed to be right here in this area. Well, there's every flavor of church that you can imagine or desire. But there's only three there. For over a thousand years. And then... Luther took a trip to Rome. And when he got to Rome and he saw what had been done with the indulgences, it was more than he could stand. In fact, it's kind of interesting to read his history. A few years back, there was a major uh, uh, writing in the, in the National Geographic about Luther. You know, at first he thought when all this corruption occurred in the Catholic Church that the Pope surely didn't know about it. And, of course, when he made his trip to Rome, he found out that he was right in the middle of it. <laughs> now, Luther did not have a desire to start a church. That was not his desire. In fact, he told people, don't call yourselves Lutherans, call yourself Christians. His thought was to reform the mother church. But listen, folks, it had gone too far. They were so far away from the truth, there was no way to bring that church back. There was no way to reform it in such a way that they, it, it could come back to the truth. Well, when he died in 1534, the followers of Luther organized the Lutheran Church. Now we have four churches. Now, a few years later, Henry, King Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife. Now, he's still connected to the Roman Church. And so he writes an appeal to the, to the Pope, and he says he wants to divorce his wife. And the Pope wrote back and said... No. Well, old King Henry VIII decided that he wasn't going to listen to that. And he wrote a letter to Parliament and he said, you're going to separate the Church of England from the Roman Church and you're going to make me the Pope or you know what's good for you. And so he formed the Church of England. And that was in 1538. 
Now, John Wesley saw the ritualistic form of worship, the empty form of worship that existed in the Church of England. And so he started what's called the Methodist Church in 1795. The Baptist churches were organized in Europe in 1605 by a man by the name of John Smith. Now, these names and dates are given in the encyclopedia. You can't find them in the Bible. You can read about the Church of Our Lord in the Bible, but you can't find these other churches in the Bible, but you can find them in secular history. The SDA, as they like to call themselves in Zambia, or the Seventh-day Adventists, started uh, in the mid-19th century. They were led by a man by the name of William Miller. Now, at first they weren't called the Seventh-day Adventists, they were called Millerites. But now Miller uh, predicted, just like this fellow that's uh, predicted Jesus would come a few days ago, that Jesus was going to come back in 1843. Well, that day came and went, and Jesus didn't come. And guess what? Miller became a backslide. And when he died in 1849, Ellen G. White and her husband took up his cause, and they changed the name to Seventh-day Adventist. Well, there's a lot of other churches. We've talked about the fact that there are 3,000 churches. But the problem is, all of these churches wear the wrong name. All of these churches started in the wrong place. All of these churches are too late for the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All of these churches have earthly heads other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Wrong name, wrong place, wrong time, wrong man. They're not the church that you read about in the will of God. In the church of Jesus Christ that started in Jerusalem, 8033, this is the one saving church, the one saving body, the one saving Christ. He built his church, and that, of course, is the church of Christ. Now, listen to this. Therefore, in conclusion, listen to this. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now we have a choice tonight. We can build on the rock of ages, or we can build on the sand. There's only one saving church. And tonight, if you're not a member of that one saving church, we invite you to become a member. Now listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Jesus said, Luke 13, verse 3, I tell you nay, but except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Obviously, repentance has to do with changing our minds, and then as a result of repentance, we change your life. And that's evidence of our repentance. Jesus said, Whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I deny also before my Father who is in heaven. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father who is in heaven. Won't you make that good confession tonight if you've never done that? And then be buried with him in baptism, for Jesus says that baptism saves us. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, 
or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.